0: On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast with me, Scott Radley, sitting in for the vacationing, Scott Thompson. We're talking about social media and what drives success. And I think you're going to predict or be able to predict what the answer is. I'll give you a hint. It's anger. Kind of gave it away. Uh, We're going to be talking about space travel because now citizens are about to be able to go up. There's a new license that's been given that will allow you to go up in space if you've got $200,000. Nonetheless... private citizens can now do this and confusion around covid where is the good communication even experts are confused we're going to talk to one of them why is it still so darn confusing stick around today on the scott thompson show on 900 chml scott thompson show here on 900 chml Scott Radler sitting in for Scott Thompson today on this day that is as scorching hot as the surface of the sun and all week and all next week as Scott, boy, did Scott Thompson look at the, look at the weather. I mean, we're expecting a little rain, but Scott Thompson nailed it. If you're going to take holidays, if you're going to take vacation, the one, the worst thing you can do on vacation is book the weeks that turn out to be lousy weather. You know what I'm talking about? And you sit there and the whole time go, why did I pick these weeks? Or, or if you take a week off in the middle of winter to go somewhere warm, the worst thing, and I don't know why this is, but the worst thing is you go somewhere warm and you look at the temperature back home and you see that there's been a warm spell. You think, ah, nuts. Somehow it's a better vacation if when you go away, if everyone else back home has had to suffer and been in a brutal Arctic cold snap or something. Well, Scott picked the right weeks, let me tell you. I want to break some news to you as we get started this hour that, um, well, that I'm pretty sure is not going to be all that much newsy to you at all. Social media, success on social media driven by anger. (gasps) Shocking. I know, right? You could never have guessed that anger and rage and nastiness would have been a driving force on social media. Yeah, well, it is. Uh, There's a new study that shows a nice comment. If you put something on social media that says something complimentary, oh, you know, so-and-so did a lovely thing. I'm really proud of that. That's going to get you nowhere. I mean, it'll get you somewhere in life, but on social media, as far as getting something to go viral or getting retweets or whatever else, almost never. Now, go online and say, leader X is a Nazi you know what, very good chance that all of a sudden you're going viral. I want to read you a short snippet from a story that was written about this phenomenon. It says this, three researchers looked at Facebook and Twitter posts from both conservative and liberal media accounts and members of Congress. This is in the States, of course. What they found, back to the quote, what they found was that out of all the factors studied, the biggest predictor of whether a post would go viral was whether it was about an out group an outgroup meaning a in this case a conservative talking about a liberal or a liberal talking about a conservative and of course not in a positive way. People liked hearing about the outgroup. This is back to the quote. People liked hearing about the outgroup, which also which often involves some form of dunk or trash talk, much more than they liked hearing about their in-group. So you talk about your friends or something you're interested in and talk about it kindly. Nah. Nah. Not so much as far as social media traction. Talk about someone you disagree with and shred them. Oh, you're going somewhere. I want to bring in Jigris Hodgson, associate professor with the College of Interdisciplinary Studies at Royal Roads University. Uh, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate the time today. Oh, thanks for having me. You know, I, I don't, we can wish this wasn't the case, but there is not a human being alive who has experienced social media that could possibly be surprised by this, could there? Hello? Is that, Jagers, can you hear me?
1: Um, I can, I can hear you. Can you hear me?
0: Oh, I can now. Yep. The oh. Technology is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Um, I know, right? It's like we're being trolled right now. Somebody is for sure. And they're going to post it and they're going to make nasty comments and it'll go viral because that's how it works. Uh, well, but I always
1: wanted to go viral.
0: That's okay. Well, what I was asking before was, it, there's nobody who's ever experienced or been on social media that could possibly be surprised by this, could there?
1: Oh, I know, right? Like, we, we are part of the rage machine, and I think we all mm. know this, but um, it's really interesting that science has finally shown us that this is indeed true, what we always thought all along.
0: Well, yeah. And and if it had come back and said, this is not true, really, I mean, the way to gain traction on social media is just to say lovely things about someone. We would have laughed at it because we know just from logic and observation, that's not the case. The question is why? What's your, I mean, this is a very philosophical and deep thing I'm asking you, but why do you think this is? Why does rage move the needle where kindness doesn't?
1: Oh Scott, I think there's a few different reasons. so first of all, you know, as human beings, we love to gossip don 't we and And we loved to gossip long before social media. you know we used to do it over the backyard fence. Um, gossip works because you know it brings people together um, and it brings people together in opposition to whoever is in the out group, right so it helps define those community ties. And I think that goes way, way back, right, into the depths of our psyche, our lizard brains, if you will, um, (laughs) that respond to strong emotions, particularly fear and anger, right? Right. When you are out, um, you know, hunting tigers, uh, for example, uh, you have to respond immediately to a threat. Uh, and that threat, uh, you could respond aggressively, right, uh, by fighting uh, the tiger, or you could respond with fear uh, by running from the tiger. But you have to make that decision in a split second. And that's why fear and anger compel us to react more than positive emotions. You know, you're, you're not going to stop and think, well, should I cuddle this tiger, uh, for example?
0: <laughs> not for long. No, no, Exactly. <laughs> But, it, it, and you know, your example, and I think it's a really good one, but we don't even have to go back that far. I think people who are. Uh, who read the paper, or still read the papers, or did read the papers once upon a time? Go to the letters to the editor. Uh, most of the letters to the editor are not saying, "Hey, great job by so and so." They're angry about something, or 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 even you know people talking about someone who's on television. Rarely do they say, "You know that I love that person." It's usually, "What an idiot that person is for wearing that particular thing." It it just seems that we we are willing to respond and take the time to respond if we're angry. And somehow, if we're feeling good about something, it's like, well, people should just assume that's how I'm feeling.
1: Oh, well, absolutely. And there's also a negativity bias in things that we will remember. So we're much more likely to attend to negative stimulus. So, you know, if somebody says, uh, you know, Jagris, you're an idiot. Um, I will remember that more than if somebody says, Jagris, you're brilliant. Uh, so so yeah, I, I think the human brain is attended to sense negativity because that could mean a threat. And so we're attended to pick up on it, to pay more attention to it and yes, to respond, absolutely. And you see this too. Um, you know, talk radio, as you know, has has its own brand of of uh you know fear and, and anxiety and sometimes negativity and um Fox News, for example, or other News outlets often um, have many programs that stoke that fear or, you know, you can think of the earliest uh, newspapers, you know, as you mentioned, it's not just the letters to the editor, but the earliest newspapers were founded on what they called yellow journalism, which is basically a form of the rumor mill. And, and it took a long time, uh, I, I'm sure you're familiar, before journalistic standards sort of caught up with the natural human tendency to want to spread yeah, gossip and negativity.
0: The irony of this, though, and I think there is an irony here, is that, I mean, I work here at the station, but I also work for the newspaper, and on both places, we hear constantly from people that they want good news, they want less anger, they want more less meanness, we want more kindness, and yet, if you look, because we can track in most places now, everybody can, what is being read online, or what's being followed, or TV ratings, the actions belie the words. The actions go contrary, 180 degrees contrary to the words. People can have these happy stories, but the things that get read are the mayhem and the murders and the fires and the arsons and the wars and everything else.
1: Yeah, Scott, that's our lizard brains at work right there. I think you just perfectly described it. So I think when we were thinking with our higher brains, you know, with with our enlightened brains, Uh, We we really do genuinely think that we want to hear those positive stories, and I think there's part of us that does, but when given the choice right on the page between the alarming story or the negative story and the positive story our lizard brains go oh i have to attend to the threat right away and so we will click on uh, that negative story or we will click on the story that you know fuels our anxiety we're not necessarily going to click on the positive story even though you know if you ask us we'll probably say no I, i would like more good news please
0: but i have to believe i refuse to believe that as humans we are simply animals who must succumb to every instinct or every feeling or desire that crosses our brain screen. And again, we're not a dog who has to do whatever our instinct tells us to do. So surely we have the choice to do one or do the other, and we still don't choose to do it.
1: You know, I I think it's because we often react without thinking and these social media uh, platforms, they are optimized to tap into that sort of, you know, unconscious, subconscious, animal side of our brains. But you're right, and I believe the same thing. I think we can do better, and I think the first thing we do to do better is when you're feeling that anger or when you're feeling, you know, that anxiety, um, I recommend that we all take a breath and stop and then start to recognize when your you know, news decisions or other decisions, for that matter, are, are being driven by those negative feelings, because that's how we stop it. And I think there's enough people like you and I who want to stop it. that you know, hopefully, even by having this conversation, we can we can start a trend uh, where, where people stop before they click and they think about, you know what, do I really need to uh, be driven by my my lizard brain? No, no, I want to be driven by other things.
0: And it's not just, I mean, look, look, so I don't look like I'm just dumping on my own profession. It's not just the news. I mean, social media is not just the news. It's There's all kinds of opportunities to, I mean, there's all kinds of opportunities in social media had it been done right for it to be such a power for good there really is and somehow it's it's become this thing where when people go on vacation one of the first things they say is i'm turning off twitter or facebook because i just have to get away from that stuff which just tells you i think all you need about everybody recognizes this is what's happening
2: oh
1: absolutely and there's a feedback loop right so if i post something negative and i get a hundred likes Versus posting something positive and getting two likes. Well, the next time I might actually be encouraged to post more negative. So then that makes the problem even worse. Um, but but yeah, I I think you're right. You know we all do it, and it could be news or it could be you know me posting something about my neighbor who you know I had bad <laughs> feelings about. So, same thing though, and same feedback process at work. Um, and I think the only way we can stop this is by becoming more aware. That this is, you know, sort of our automatic instinctual reaction and saying, no, we can be better than our instincts.
0: Okay, let me take it another step further, though, because Facebook's mission statement includes (laughs) this. Facebook's mission is to give people the power to build community and bring the world closer together. All right, that is the most lofty, ambitious, optimistic mission statement ever. But we know that this and other social, not just Facebook, other social media uh, media platforms too, they run on algorithms which find what we want and feed them back to us, Which is which tells me that they have the opportunity, they and the other social media platforms have the opportunity to algorithmize us towards positive stuff, but they see we don't like that, so they feed us the bad stuff which just keeps the thing flowing.
1: Well, you know, is it that It is simply that we are uh, contributing to those algorithms. On the one hand, yes, because we are clicking on the negative stuff. But on the other hand, Facebook's lofty mission is actually different than the day-to-day, which is they need to make money, right, by selling Uh our attention spans to to advertisers. And they do that through posting the content that is most likely uh, to give us a response, so that negative content or that anxiety promoting content. So that's what the algorithms are doing. The algorithms could just as easily lead us down, right, a positive direction. It could yes. just show us cute cat pictures all day, and I would be very <laughs> happy to click on those. So yeah, I mean, I think that it's a complicated answer, obviously, because you know, we are not simply driven by the technology or the algorithms. We do have a part to play. But at the same time, I don't think that the algorithms are really optimized for that goal of bringing people together. They're, they're actually optimized, you know, to to sell me another gadget that I may or may not need.
0: Well, and, and I, I want to get back into the news side with the algorithms for, algorithms for a second, because in this country and in the States, but in this country, we've had a lot of discussion in recent years about the idea of fake news. And should the government or should any kind of agency be weeding out? Should Facebook be having proofreaders or or truth tellers to decide what's fake news or what isn't? And I always look at this and think, goes back to my point. Why do we need that as opposed to why do we not just teach people? You don't have to believe everything you Mm -hmm. see. You don't have to click on every single story that looks ridiculous. And yet, because it's there, you go, oh, well, if it's on Facebook, it must be true. Justin Trudeau <laughs> must have nine women in nine different ports, or you know, like all these ridiculous. We don't have to believe stuff just because it's there.
1: Well, that's right, and I think there is um, a digital literacy uh, push, which is which is what you're talking about that that needs to happen. And you know, surprisingly, it's it's often. People in an older demographic who didn't grow up with Facebook who are the most susceptible uh, to sharing those things. And I think it's because um, they got used to trusting the news yes. right? because yes. journalistic standards you know, are, are a thing that we still fall back on. Um, but Facebook doesn't have journalistic standards. So, so, you know, the interesting part is often the digital literacy needs to be delivered to groups that, that we don't even consider. And I do think that's part of it. I also think that, you know, we need to think a little bit more about other maybe nudges that, that can happen. So Facebook doesn't need to censor content necessarily, but they could put uh, disclaimers on some content if, if the content is determined to be demonstrably false. And they've started to do that with, with some good results. Um, but I also think that uh, we need to reconsider the role of, of social media in our lives. Like it does hack our our brains in such a way that. It's, it's kind of tapping into the deepest insecurities that we have as, as human beings, you know, emotionally, psychologically, and socially, and it makes it really compelling, really hard to break away. And so I think we sort of need to consider, you know, what's a healthy level of, of Facebook and, and how can we as individuals have that healthy level in our life instead of doing everything, you know, through these social platforms that don't have our best interests at heart.
0: It's a fantastic point that there is personal responsibility involved as opposed to just saying, you know the tech companies have to fix it for us, but we don't necessarily like that. But question then becomes, as we got only have a minute or so left here. is there any going any is there any going back from this or or oh, wow. if, if the if we now see that, you know anger drives everything, well, we're just going to see more and more of this because the algorithms are going to push us to that, and we're going to keep clicking.
1: That's right, Scott. And so I think that, you know, you mentioned personal responsibility. That's important. I think that, you know, the platforms do have to do more. Uh, and I also think that we may need some kind of regulation around, you know, just advertising standards for platforms or, or information monopolies, breaking up the platform so we're not doing everything through the same company is a good idea. Uh, And so all the way up and down the line. So like at the organizational level, at the individual level, and at the policy level, I think we need to introduce different things that can help because the problem is quite complex.
0: It really is, and and it really, as I say, when the, when the first thing you hear from so many people is, "Oh, I'm going on vacation. I'm just turning off my phone. I'm not looking at Twitter." It's like, okay, that should be a pretty good sign that something has gone askew with this. But you know, but we, but the second we come back, on it goes again, and all of our relaxation <laughs> is gone. Uh, That's right. so Hodson, maybe we
1: can keep it off a little longer, hey? Yeah.
0: Well, they'll find a way to drag us back in. Somehow they'll tap into our soul or something. I don't know. Uh, Jagers Hodson, associate professor with the College of Interdisciplinary Studies at Royal Roads University. Really appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: A great discussion. And I'll say this, uh, it does seem funny to me as I talk about social media and stuff and all the anger that's out there and everyone is, you know, social media has no nuance. There's no, there's no debate. There's no real debate in social media. It's just screaming. And social media to me is the, it's just the icing on the cake that proves that in a society that says and demands says it is and demands tolerance. We are the least tolerant people probably ever. And I'm not talking on one side of the political sphere or philosophical sphere. Everybody left, right doesn't matter. We have become, I think in a lot of ways through social media, under the guise of having to be tolerant, less tolerant than we've ever been of, of people before in a lot of ways. I will be going on vacation in a couple of weeks and social media will be going off and I will feel better about it as you will if you do the same thing. And then I will make the mistake when I come back of turning it back on and I will wish that I had not done it because that's our world. <laughs> You know, when Jetsons came out and my understanding, and this was a little bit before my time, but my understanding was that Jetsons was either supposed to be a space, space age Flintstones or a space age honeymooners or some combination of the two. But the point was we were supposed to be living. This was the cartoon version that we were supposed to be living in a world where there were flying cars and it was, you know, everything was space. It was at the height of the space race and the Neil Armstrong time and everything else. Everything was space. There was a time it's hard to remember. There was a time hard to remember for those who weren't there. There was a time when, you know, space was the coolest thing imaginable. The Houston Astrodome space, the Astros space, everything was space because the space race was so cool. Well, I mean, for a variety of reasons, I guess that changed or that faded out. We got to the moon. We went a few times, eh, Kind, of, you know, seen it once. Don't know if I need to see it eight or nine times. At least that was the thought. And so finances, budgets that got cut and then we had the space shuttle. And then, you know, remember what happened with the space shuttle and that was tragic. And so anyway, we are now maybe about to get to the next Really exciting, really cool, really fascinating moment in space. And here's why. Last week, Virgin Galactic stocks shot up 39% because the Federal Aviation Authority in the U.S. approved a license for passenger space flights. Passenger space flights. You no longer have to be an astronaut. You can just be a doofus with money and you can go up and fly in space. We are at the real-life Jetsons moment. Question is, would you? Are you ready if that was to be a commonplace kind of thing? I want to bring in Dr. Jesse Rogerson. He's Associate Professor of Science and Technology Studies in Natural Science at York University. Jesse, thanks for doing this today. Very much appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me back. So let me ask you a question. Now that we have the possibility or the, the, the sound like we're going to be having these passenger space flights, if I hand you a ticket to go on one and blast off into space, no training to be an astronaut, just to sit there, would you do it? Oh, of course. Of course I would do it. That's like one of the, one of the
2: experiences that, that's on my bucket list. If I have the chance to fly into space, how could I
0: say no? What about you? Well, I, I think I would. And there, when you say, how could I say no? The only reason, the only way you could say no is we know that space flight over the lifetime that we've done this has always been a risky and dangerous thing. I mean, we've, we've never been able to shake the fact that uh, no matter how you do it, it there, there is risk involved in that. It's not quite the same as just flying a plane
2: definitely true the, the flying to space is not an everyday thing even though we do it like almost every day we're flying things into into space like satellites and and astronauts quite frequently it, but it's still risky and it's still something that we're learning how to do um perfectly certainly our record in in air in air flight with aircraft like you know transcontinental flights like is is much much better so but that's not to say that um we're not good at what we do, so uh, there's a lot of launches that have occurred and sent a lot of humans into space, and we've done a, a pretty good job on it, um, with some notable, um, really sad exceptions. So, but we are entering a new era of engineering here. This is this is now an era of not just governmental launches, but private company launches as well, and it's it's an era where the the technology to get into space has we're getting so good at it that the the actual um like the actual cost to doing it is actually coming down so this is like imagine way way back when um when computers were first invented and like they were ridiculously expensive and nobody could have them but now we all have like two or three or seven in our homes right Hmm. and and it's the same thing with with um with space flight now we're we're getting to a point where it's not just government-run stuff But private companies can start doing this as well, building their own rockets. And of course, it's the only it's only the big, big companies that are doing this, like Amazon and Virgin Galactic and so on. Um, But we are we're transitioning. We're transitioning from government run to, you know, actual random everyday people flying into space. And we're at the beginning of it, which means it's getting safer and safer each time we do it.
0: You know, it's it's a funny thing you say when you say, well, we're now morphing from government to private. There are people listening. I guarantee you the audience is split. There are people who would say, oh, no, no, we don't want private. That's just for profit. They're going to cut corners. That's going to be way riskier. There are others who say, look, government can't do anything. So the sooner we get out <laughs> of the government business, the better. Is it a positive thing that it's going to more the private sector now? Um, well, absolutely. Yeah. I mean,
2: There, I think that there is no, there's no one answer to this. There's no government doing it all by themselves is not the best way to do it. And private companies doing it all by themselves is not the best way to do it. A, a healthy approach to something like this is having um, a good in, in a good inclusion of both uh, private and public money and private and public astronauts and, um, I guess now we're getting into the time where we can actually do uh, public tourism where you're, you're flying people up there and, and private tourism and you're flying people up. Um, so it's definitely, it's not a bad thing at all to get to the point where technology can now be brought to the masses. Basically, there'd be no reason for a private company to do this unless government agencies 50 years ago invested the money and, the, and put in the work 50 years ago to get the technology to where it is today. And now we're at a point where private companies can now jump in and start making a real um, impact on, on the sector, on the space sector.
3: So it's it's not surprising
0: at all. Well, and a private company doing this, I'll say one other thing, a private company doing this, if you're going to put in the billions, I don't think that's a stretch at all, the billions of dollars to get to where this could be. I, I think it's probably reasonable to say that if there was to be a tragedy with a bunch of space tourists, that's probably the end of your business. So there is huge motivation to make sure this is perfect because there's not a whole billions of dollars in government money waiting on the back end. You get one chance at this. And, and also keep in mind that they're, they're regulated the same as, as a government agency is right. Like it's, it's NASA
2: doesn't have um, different rules than someone else does, right? Everybody has to pass the same checks to get into space. Uh, So they're, they're heavily regulated. To fly into space, to fly an aircraft of any kind is heavily regulated. You know, flying in an airplane is one of the safest things you can do um, in terms of transportation, right? So space is no no exception. They're, it's heavily regulated, and these people know what they're doing. Like, these are the best engineers and researchers in the world, right?
0: Did you ever imagine we'd get to the point where, and we've heard about it, but where space tourism was really a thing? <laughs> I've been. I've
2: yes. I definitely think it would. It was coming um, as soon as I started grad school. Uh, it, it's just. It's always been talked about. We've. It's the the industry. Uh, NASA and the CSA have been talking about this for decades. And and really, to be honest, I mean, the private industry has been a part of space exploration since the beginning, right? Because when NASA got going in in full force back in the early 60s the first thing they did was um, enlist the help of a whole bunch of private companies across the United States. Right. So it's about, it's always been a private public uh, partnership. Now, the difference now is that now you have a, a public entity being able to call their own shots or sorry, a private entity being able to call their own shots instead of being administered by NASA, the money is being administered by a private company. So it, the private the private industry has always been there and people have been talking about this for a long time. And now, I mean, with the announcement a few months ago with uh, Jeff Bezos saying, I'm doing it, I'm going. Um, and now with Virgin Galactic saying, I, we already have our, our approval from FAA. We can do this almost whenever we want now. Um, it's, it's the 20 years, I guess, of listening to this is now finally coming coming through.
0: Uh, yeah, this is a this is a funny one. The fact that you've got um, Richard Branson from Virgin and Jeff Bezos from Amazon both racing to get up there. For, <laughs> I mean, it, this sounds like you're they're sort of having a, a competition to see who has the biggest um, rocket.
2: I mean, I, I I love it. I can't I can't help but laugh at how billionaires act in situations like this. I mean, it's definitely an ego thing. You have to think about it, uh, but you know, standing back and enjoying the drama of it all a little bit, it is still cool um, from like, from, from you and I perspective. Yeah. You know, billionaires, you know, spending their money, who gets to be the first in space, whatever. Right. One of them will do it. Who cares? The The real, the real bonus here is that, you know, 10 years from now, the steps they're taking right now means that the tickets prices are going to come down slowly and slowly as competition grows and the tourism industry um, in space grows I mean I'm not saying that you and I will ever be able to afford it, but um the the price will slowly creep down as as these companies compete to be the best.
0: Right. And right now it's like somewhere around two hundred, two hundred and fifty thousand dollars for these early flights yeah. that we're talking about. But is there a is there a is there something beyond just space travel that we're going to get out of this is this purely just a business model to make money for these companies with these expensive tickets or is there actually some science along the way that's going to help with further or future space flight in other ways
2: Uh, well definitely science is involved here i mean so well it depends on the different factions of the different companies you're talking about um like virgin galactic is is definitely interested in the tourism game where they're going to be flying people up But they, they're, by building a rocket and flying, um, tourists to space, you, you're able to diversify your company a little bit. Like, by, by having that technology, you can say, um, bid for contracts to launch satellites or, um, bid for contracts to work with NASA or bid for contracts, you know, for whatever reason you could think of, um, that's involving space. And there's no, there's no doubt about it. The space industry, tourism included, but all facets of the space industry, is going to be exploding over the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years as as we're now transitioning into a point where there's multiple companies, multiple um, funding sources, and being attached to space, like when our, with communications, with internet, like this is all really, really important for day to day life now. So the it's the whole thing, like everything you could think about related to space, these companies, yes, they're launching tourists, or they're trying to launch tourists, Um, but they're positioning themselves to be in the prime position for the new space economy. It's not just tourism, it's everything.
0: Yeah. I was trying to think of the last thing that I would compare, like nothing, nothing exactly compares to this. We haven't put average people in space before, but the one that came to mind, the closest thing to this, it's so out there and only a few people can afford it was the Concorde um, that you could, you know, fly across the Atlantic in like two and a half hours. And that was, wildly expensive at the time to the point where you and i and most people wouldn't afford it and it went out of business and they they stopped doing it but i always wondered if they had kept going with that would the prices have eventually come down to the point where the average person could afford it or was that always going to be out of reach and I, I extend the same thing here do you see a day when the average person says oh you know what fifteen thousand dollars instead of going on a cruise with my family and whatever, it's, I'm going to just myself go to, is it going to be something even remotely reachable or is this always going to be just for the elite? I So I tend to be an optimist on this. I mean, it, this is a, that's a really hard thing to predict, but
2: I think personally that it will come down to a point where it's kind of like buying a car, right? Hmm. Where it's 30 or 40,000 um, for a brand new car, you think about doing that, or you could do an eight minute trip to space, right? <laughs> and it's, that's, I mean, you that's know. still like quite a, quite a huge expenditure, right? But um, I think it's possible for it to to for it to come down that far, and that that does kind of put it in some people's range of purchase, right? Um, the ultimate status symbol at the cocktail party. I know, right? Yeah, I got here's my Lexus, and I'm like, yeah, well, I went to space for, for eight
0: minutes. Um, that's right. But Top But the that. difference is
2: that you get to you get to drive your your expensive car for as long as you want, whereas you go to space and it's just a one-time thing.
0: Well, um, I we got to run. I would assume that if you pay that kind of money, they at least give you a space suit. And if you get a space suit to go up, I'm wearing that space suit everywhere <laughs> I go for the next <laughs> If I'm paying that money, you're going to know that I went to space without me even having to tell you. Here's what I'm hoping from it is that we can get so one of the one of
2: the most common things that every person who goes to space says is that when they get up there and they look down on Earth that it changes their view. It it mm. changes how how fragile the earth looks when you get so far away and you look down on it and the more people we can send to space to get that view and hopefully get that perspective change that that holy crap this earth is important and we need to take care of it if we the more people we can get up there doing that i think the better will be for our stewardship
0: of of our planet bravo for that yes absolutely but of course you know that this will eventually just degenerate into being who can join the 50 mile high club (laughs) (laughs) I suppose, yes. I suppose. Um, I don't know how easy that's going (laughs) to (laughs) be. Well, uh, someone's going to try, you know, as well as I do. Someone's going to volunteer. Dr. Jesse Rogerson, Assistant Professor of Science and Technology Studies in Natural Science at York University. Always love having you on. Thanks for the time today. No worries. Thank you so much.
2: You're listening to the
0: Scott Thompson show podcast on 900 CHML. You would think that things would be pretty clear by now, about what we can and can't do as it comes to COVID. I mean, we've been at this for almost a year and a half now. You would think there would be a pretty good idea. We'd be pretty clear about the do's and the don'ts, the yeses and the no's. And even though it's been a moving target and things have changed, obviously with numbers going up, numbers going down. You'd think that we would have, by this point, had a consistent, compelling message from one or two people that we would have followed and all would have been easy. Well, not so much. Not so much. It seems as though there is still a ton of confusion from governments, from friends, from businesses, from family members, from everyone. We don't we still don't really seem to know. Where to look, who to listen to, who to believe, where the consistent message is going to be from. There's times, for sure, there's times, but there still seems to be an awful lot of confusion. Dr. Carrie Bowman is a bioethicist and an assistant professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Toronto. Uh, thanks for doing this today, Dr. Bowman. Very much appreciate it. Happy to do so. Let's start with uh, the, the foundation here as of today. Where do we stand today? Because again, we're talking confusion. A fully vaccinated Canadian today can do what?
3: So my understanding is fully vaccinated Canadians can, can, you know, mingle, uh, so to speak, with other fully vaccinated Canadians. Um, I I do believe, and look, I've read this a couple of times and I'm not sure I've got it memorized. (laughs) And I think I'm in the same boat as a lot of Canadians. So then the thing is, yes, you can do that. But look, you know, in in my little life, I I just am planning something for the weekend for a small amount of people outside, outside. And it occurs to me, do I have to be a Grinch and say they shouldn't bring their children? I don't want to do that. But there's the part that's not clear. And I was looking this up this morning is is what do we do about children? Um, Because, you know, you don't want to exclude children unnecessarily. And also it puts pressure on people you know, they're having to find babysitters for events that children should really be a part of. So so it's very confusing. And when I say children, I mean under 12, right? Yeah. So that's the co- the cohort. And that's a lot of people. You know, maybe immediate some immediate families, kids have grown. But, but when you start getting into extended families and, and group gatherings, like there's going to be children. So so this one is, is very confusing. But look, here's the thing, in fairness to the government, it, it, it's a tough slog because you know the, the the situation is the delta variant it has really confused a lot of things and you know we've got breakthrough outbreaks that are occurring in in highly vaccinated societies like britain and uh like israel so they're not catastrophic but they are occurring so in fairness to the government uh that's important i i have two problems with it one is the children thing is So confusing. And if we don't know, we still need some guidelines and suggestions as to how we should proceed with that. The second is, I think, for fully vaccinated Canadians, it went on for way too long. Uh, I know older people that have been tucked in their houses, fully vaccinated, and they have been in those houses and apartments for a long time and waiting uh, for government permission to, to get out into the world again. I think it went on for a lot longer than it needed to. Because if fully vaccinated people can't interact, what's the point? Um,
0: yeah, why did so, we get vaccinations if you can't do anything once you've got them? <laughs> yeah.
3: So I think that dragged on for too long. And I actually think if there hadn't been social commentary and interviews like yours and things like this, I, I'm not sure they ever would have done Well, they would have. But I think it would have gone on even longer. But in well, fairness, you know, if someone's immunocompromised in the family, you've got to use your own judgment. Um you know, if someone's particularly vulnerable, you've got to use your own judgment. And and then the obvious, if it's been less than two weeks of full vaccination.
0: Okay, um, great. Sure,
3: sure. But the good news is it's forward movement. There's no question that things are getting better, <laughs> we hope. at
0: least in Canada. We hope. But here, let me go back because one of the, I think one of the first words you said when you started your answer was my understanding. Now, look. Yeah. You have the word doctor in front of your name. You're a bioethicist. You're an assistant professor. You're a brilliant, insightful, educated, on top of things person. And you are saying, well, my understanding, what chance do the rest of us have of figuring this stuff out if even people who are in this world can't quite sort it out this is this is what we're getting at this is the real problem with all this stuff And i'm
3: not sure i'm all those grand things but i do read about this a lot in fairness i read about this a lot so you would think i'd have this on this and it's not that i you know i don't stay on top of this i'm doing the best i can you're exactly right when you say that and you know i know other people that are also in that expertise category that aren't sure themselves um so this is tough but you know fully back it's forward movement that's good news Fully vaccinated people with fully vaccinated people, that's clear. That's good news. Um, but, you know, some of the mixing with, with partially vaccinated people, often it's in an outdoor situation. Um, and, you know, the, one of the things I find most useful is there's a, what would it be called? Um, I don't know if it would be called a pictograph, but a visual chart uh, that is online. And I find that's probably about the best as to how people can <clears throat> can interact in terms of what vaccinated Canadians can do. So with the beginning, but look, I'm circling back to something I've already said. I've got two big problems with it, the children. And also, I think we're owed an explanation as to why, because I'm really thinking of older Canadians, why they got left like this for so Hmm. long without any direction.
0: Well, let me throw another one at you because you use the word clear. Let's talk about clarity for a second. The the Public Health Agency of Canada put out a website uh, on their website, put out an infograph, again, a visual thing last week. And it says what you can do, what you can't do. But then it has this little nugget in it. And it says you can get together with your people if you're fully vaccinated if everyone is comfortable with that. Well, I, I'm thinking, wait a second. What is if you're comfortable with it work as public health advice? That's like your mom once upon a time said, well, you can do that if you think that's a good idea. And it's the guilt voice. And it's like, what does if you feel comfortable? You need we need better guidance than if you feel comfortable with it, because we don't know what we're supposed to feel comfortable with.
3: No, and that's that's very, very true. And you know what what I think the the way this gets kind of unloaded onto the average Canadian and the average Canadian family is that when you plan something, whether you're having people over or not, you, you put in the invitation, this is what I'm doing, by the way, um, you know, uh, vaccinated people, fully vaccinated people, we will be meeting outdoors. And you kind of outline what the parameters will be. And then if there's people that think, you know, I'm not so okay with that, we've got children, or I've got a really, you know, immuno suppressed person in the family, then they would make that choice. But they're, they're kind of pushing it back on us. And there's many people that would say, well, I'm not qualified to know who's vulnerable and who, like, you know, the, these are medical determinations. So so I would agree with that. But, you know, I I think more than ever, as invitations begin to emerge over this, this summer, we, what we need to do is outline what the the parameters of the social interaction will be. You know, where it's going to be, how many people, and who's vaccinated. That's that's my take on that
0: and and here's why i think this is an issue and maybe you you share the view maybe you don't but here's why i think this is an issue and why saying if you're comfortable is sort of such a wishy-washy unknowable thing is the guidelines have been a moving target now i understand covid has also been a moving target so i I don't want to be too too critical but you know we go back to the beginning we were told that covid would be rare in canada then we were told no no it's going to be a big problem here we were told We shouldn't close the borders because that would be wrong and harmful. Then we were told, no, we've got to close the borders. We were told we shouldn't quarantine if you come into the country. And then we were told, no, you have to. And then we were told, don't wear masks. That's bad. Then we were told, wear masks and on and on. And again, I'm not trying to point too many fingers because this has been something that we've been learning on the fly. But if we don't have something directly addressing some of our concerns, I think a lot of people are going to look and say, but everything we've been told has changed at one time. So, what am I supposed to follow?
3: Yeah, no. And, you know, if people say that, they're not, they're really not wrong per se. I mean, the only thing we can add to that is a year and a half in, it's, all, it's not really a year and a half, but it's getting very close. Uh, we, we do have a higher level of understanding than we did in those early days. But you're right. Remember the early days where, you know, our fearless leaders, low risk, low risk, and we were losing so much time when we could have been preparing the country for something that was far more serious. So, so, you know, you're quite right, but we do know more than we did then. Absolutely. That's a reassurance. It's the summer is gloriously here. So whatever choices (laughs) we make now (laughs) are going to be outside and patio related, like unless there's a thunderstorm going on, there's not a lot of reason to be inside at least for a few months. So you know, we've got that to fall back on. But, you know, I don't blame people when they say, and I'm not critical of them, you know, that it's evolving and I get that. But also, let's be clear, our leadership, um, they've made mistakes that we've all paid the price for. There's no question about that. Um, has, and I wouldn't argue with anyone on that. That's that's fact.
0: Has the communication been affected and this is a big communication thing and we've got two parts of this story one is the science is trying to figure this out and one is the communication has the communication been muddied by the fact that we have a national medical officer of health and provincial medical officers of health and local medical officers of health who are all talking and their stories aren't all their intentions are good but their stories aren't always exactly the same has that been a complication
3: yeah, it has been. To answer your question very directly, it has clearly been a complication. Those three levels have some strength outside of a pandemic, by the way. Not all strength, but they've got some strength outside of the pandemic. There's no question. But that has been, you know, the toughest as I see it is when the people that are deemed to be expert have their nose in the same set of data and they look up and they tell you different recommendations mm. from each other. You know, it really weakens faith. And also, even with our, our guidelines for interaction, you know, they've gone and they were critical of the Americans. Well, did the Americans get it wrong? Who knows? You know, like it, it, it's a hard, hard, hard call. And look, it's even worse. I'm going to sound nasty here. I don't mean to sound too nasty. But some of the people that were in charge of communication, they're not brilliant communicators, irrespective of their expertise. Just as human communication goes, they're not fabulous at it. Um, so that didn't help either. And I think that probably wasn't seen as that important an element of the job in non-pandemic times.
0: But yeah, and, and now I wonder, we got to run unfortunately, but now my concern is this, you mentioned the Delta variant. Let's hope, I'm touching wood, I'm, I'm crossing my finger, I'm doing all the things yeah, you would too. do. <laughs> Let's hope this now, ne- but if, if if we were to get back to a point now where something arose and we had to go back into lockdowns again or something, I, I just don't even know if anyone's going to listen at, at this point. I think, I think we may have reached the point when people just shut it out.
3: They may. They may. And I don't. I'm expressing my opinion here. I I think the Delta variant needs to be taken very seriously, but I don't think it's a massive threat. It does respond uh, to, you know, vaccine vaccinated people tend to not get it or get mild illness. I mean, the wild card would be another variant that's yet to surface that could be Mm. nastier. But, you know, that may never happen. And hopefully by then, you know, so far vaccines are working. And look at the good news. I mean, you know, Toronto did this massive vaccination, you know, over the weekend. And and they're happening all over the country. Things are definitely getting better. And on some other conversation, we could talk about the global situation. (laughs) and That's not so wonderful. But, you know, that's something we've got to keep our eye on, too.
0: Yes. Well, listen, it's, uh, let's just continue to hope that there's lessons out of this about communication and future things. And, uh, you know, there's lessons, there should always be lessons from this, but in the meantime, let's hope that people can figure out what they want to do and are comfortable as they say. And we, it's, it's confusing, but anyway, we carry on. Uh, Dr. Carrie Bowman, uh, from the university of Toronto, very much appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. You're very welcome. Take care. <laughs> Scott Thompson show here on 900 CHML. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson. Stanley Cup finals begin tonight. It's, I mean, I I paused because it almost seems contradictory or against human nature to be talking about hockey when you could fry bacon on the hood of your car right now if you're outside or in my case on your forehead. (laughs) There's, there's a lot of forehead space to be able to fry bacon, and it extends right back to the back of my head, as it turns out. Funny how that goes. Uh, but yes, it's a blazing day outside, and yet, you know, the finals of hockey roll on, and now, now it gets interesting. I mean, look, I know it's been interesting for a lot of people along the way. There are Canadians fans, and certainly there are Leafs fans. Uh, interesting in whole different reasons. But now it's interesting because now you've got the team that I think most people almost universally look at and say they are the best team in hockey and have been for a little while. That would be the Tampa Bay Lightning. And you have the Montreal Canadiens who are the ultimate conundrum because they're not that good a team. At least the regular season suggests that. They're just not that good a team. But boy, have they got hot and turned it on at the right time and they are now... In the finals, uh, a little note on a couple things. There is plenty of local content in these Stanley Cup finals. Remember, Dave Anderchuk now works for the Tampa Bay Lightning, was their captain, won their first cup for them, now works for them. Julian Breezebois, their general manager, was the general manager of the Hamilton Bulldogs once upon a time. Uh, Corey Conacher is still in that system from Burlington um, you go down the list. Uh, Trevor Van Notzenberg is a Beamsville guy. Who's the head of their communications department. I mean, we're digging in deep now, flip side, Montreal Canadians part owner is M- Michael Anlauer who owns the Hamilton Bulldogs. He's a part owner of the Canadians. Um, one of the equipment guys is a former Hamilton Bulldogs equipment guy. And then on the ice, you've got Josh Anderson, Josh Anderson, who's from Burlington. You've got Ben Sherratt, who is from Hamilton. One of the one of the great sports families of this city. His sister Taylor, once upon a time, was McMaster's all-time leading scorer in basketball, went on to be a coach at Redeemer. Uh, His brothers have both played high-level junior hockey. So lots and lots of local connections. Question is, does Montreal have any chance whatsoever at this point? Or have they finally, in the words of Napoleon, hit their waterloo let's bring in sean fitzgerald who is a senior writer with the athletic and not only that also a hamilton guy so we're extra delighted to have him along sean how are you doing
4: well technically burlington but i did spend a lot of time in hamilton hey did you skip over carrie
0: price and all of that i did skip over Carrie. thank you you know the most obvious one the most obvious one is the one that i skipped over by accident yes of course carrie price who won a Calder Cup for the Hamilton Bulldogs in 2007. And I'll say this, Sean, if you go back and look at the photos when she, when Carey Price is hoisting the Calder Cup, I hope that if they win the Stanley Cup, if Montreal wins the Stanley Cup, I hope Carey Price will look a little more enthusiastic. I'm not sure that's guaranteed. Um, like,
4: he really does seem to be that guy. I, I, I know you've written about it and... A couple of weeks ago, I went back and spoke with a, a bunch of guys that he played with in, in Tri-City and again in Hamilton um, and in Montreal. Um, and all along the way, it's the same thing. It's like, I mean, uh, A.J. Baines, a former yep. leader of the Bulldogs that season, told Captain a of the team story that story of, of hanging out uh, just after Kerry had been called up from Tri-City or was assigned, excuse me, from Tri-City at the beginning of the playoffs. And they're all sitting in their apartment. They're trying to make the new guy feel welcome. They're playing... FIFA on playstation and a call comes in from a friend who's talking to aj and says hey do you know that 1985 the canadians called up a kid from junior and uh played in the ahl and, and he helped the ahl franchise win a uh, calder cup and was named the mvp and it was patrick Waugh. so aj relays all of that it's like hey carrie you know patrick Waugh, mvp calder cup carrie looks up from the video game for just a second and says that's all i gotta do cool And goes back to playing a video game. Goes on, wins the Calder Cup, wins the MVP,
0: and here we are. Well, and another great story from that year that that tells about uh, Carey Price is um, the third goalie that year was a guy who got bumped out because Carey Price showed up. A guy named Philip Sauve, whose brother, whose dad Bob Sauve, won a Vesna Trophy in Buffalo once upon a time. And was agent briefly as well. Was he okay? And I remember talking to Phil Solvay after, and he said, you know, like Carey Price, the day or like leading up to before he went on the ice for the game in which they won the championship was sleeping in his stall. <laughs> it was asleep in his stall. And I was like, okay, all right. You know, it, it, he's a different, he's a different cat. Let's put it that way. He is definitely a different cat. The question is, here's the thing. Um, for the first time, I think in these playoffs, there is a question about who the best goalie is in the series because Carey Price is and has been absolutely magnificent. Tampa has a pretty good goalie too, and and if the goalies become a wash, does Montreal have a chance against Tampa? Because the teams don't seem to be all that even after you get past the goalies.
4: Well, I mean, Carey Price is. I think when in 2014 at the Olympics, the last uh, Olympics that the NHL was sending its players to, I have to double check this. This is off memory. But I think his save percentage was something like a nine seven five, like a nine six to a nine seven five. Like it's just ridiculous the numbers he put up, and that was against the best in the world, albeit behind also a very good team. Um, but yeah, like I think that it'd be really tough to make an argument that anybody. And I, I'm not. I realize this sounds like hyperbole. That anybody is better than Carey Price right now, and part of that is just the system that Montreal plays. That, yeah, I mean they're based around that giant redwood tree of a man, Shea Weber, and they have Jeff Petrie, and they have Sherrod, and they have Edmonston, and they're built to sort of funnel everything back there, and then ultimately Carey Price is the guy who makes the save. They go up in transition and they counterpunch. Like Montreal is. A kind of, and this is an imperfect sort of comparison, but it's kind of like a rope a dope. You go in, you throw your punch, you throw your punch, you throw your punch, and all of a sudden, a kid who's 16 years old and three foot two is racing down the ice in transition and pops one past your goaltender. Like, that's been their MO. I mean, I, I can't remember the statistic, but like a, a huge percentage of Montreal's goals have been off the rush on transition. Like, yep. they don't set up in your offensive zone. So, with all of that time spent in their defensive zone, like the pressure and the focus, ultimately falls on the guy between the pipes. And that's, that's been Carey
0: Price and and here they are. And that description that you just made for the defense. And since we talked about the Hamilton Bulldogs in 2007, that is exactly what they did back in 2007. They had a gigantic defense and you just keep the shots to the outside and let Carey Price stop everything. And so far, so far it's worked. It just, it seems as though and I'm not, I'm not saying Montreal can't win but it seems as though Tampa is a different animal than all the other teams that that Montreal has had to play to this point but who knows i mean it it, it just seems as they are the most complete team and the most dangerous team i mean yeah i mean you can you can go up and down
4: <laughs> and uh, let's not be let's be clear here i mean everybody was wrong for all three of these series. I mean, maybe Winnipeg was the softest one, but I mean, I'm not sure a lot of people would have taken Montreal in that first round. But again, so Toronto had all of that elite offensive talent that more or less went to sleep, um, and it didn't have a Victor Hedman. Uh, Winnipeg, you know, lost Mark Scheifele pretty quickly, Um and then again, you know, didn't have the raw offensive power. So yeah, you come to Tampa and you have names like Kucherov and Stamkos and Hedman and the fact that they're approximately seven hundred million dollars over the cap somehow, yeah, it's, it's an all-star team. Um, but like Vegas had a pretty good team too, um, and you know there are a couple of bounces and the ghosts of the Forum moving to the Bell Center. I mean, at some point um, you do start to wonder if you know maybe it's not all of these other teams just having these these, these brain farts. Uh, maybe it is something that these Canadians are doing. Now, all that being said, Tampa could come out and win 8 nothing tonight. But, I mean, I am going to be full disclosure. I have underestimated Montreal in every single step of the way so far this spring.
0: Let's talk about the ghosts for a second. We can talk ghosts, we can talk pixie dust, we can talk whatever. The, their first round… pixie uh, dust or pixie dust? P- uh, either one. Pixie dust, okay, I that's said, fair. but… That's fair. Uh, First round, the Leafs lose John Tavares right off the bat. Later, they lose Jake Muzzin. as you say, Winnipeg loots, loses Mike Mark Scheifele. Vegas loses Stevenson, their number one center. And now it looks as though uh, Nikita Kucherov, who's Tampa's best forward, says he's fine, says I'm not hurt. Although he left the game for a long time a few games ago with a cross check to the ribs and probably is playing hurt and being shot up with something is that is that what we're talking about with the pixie dust that things seem to fall into place along the way that the path gets they still have to grab it but the path is sort of just cleared enough to make things work for them i don't know because i mean you take a look at the
4: plow horses that helped montreal get here like like they're being held together by duct tape and prayer right like i mean you know petrie goes and he gets his hand caught Uh, ever so slightly in a cutout that they use for still photographers, and he dislocates two fingers. Um, Shea Weber might not have opposable thumbs right now, like he's so injured and banged up. They've got guys who are banged up too, like key, key guys, and yet here they are. I think maybe the ghosts of the forum might be things like, you know, Cole Caulfield all of a sudden, you know, becoming the second coming of Marcus Naslund. It might be something like Marc-Andre Fleury going out to play the puck and decided he wanted to have a conversation with it instead, and that leads to Josh Anderson scoring (laughs) a critical (laughs) potential.
0: Revisit the World Junior Tournament memories of years gone by.
4: I mean, yeah, I mean, not exactly that, but yeah, no, I mean, that same thing. So I think those are what the ghosts are, because anybody who gets to this stage of the playoffs is going to be beaten up in Montreal is surely beaten up. I mean, Brendan Gallagher looks like he's been a pin cushion and you have Weber, you have Petrie, you have, you have, um, you have Corey Perry, who, you know, has his nose in multiple pieces right now. Um, So yeah, Montreal is banged up too, but it's just, there's just something about it. You know what it is, Scott? Somebody described it not that long ago. as like, you know, those old heist movies. It's like the old gang, they get back together for one more big score, and they always bring a couple of snot those kids along to sort of be antagonists. That's what it feels like with this group. Like You have these old guys, and then all of a sudden you have a Nick Suzuki and a Jesperi Kokanemi and a Cole Caulfield, and somehow you throw them in a salad bowl together, and, and they all work.
0: And I think that's a great analogy, and I'll tell you why. Because I really believe this is Carey Price's, I don't want to say his only chance, but this may be his only chance, because I, I truly don't believe the Montreal Canadiens are that good a team. They are playing amazingly well right now. They've figured it out in these playoffs, but I'm I'm not, I said this last week on the show, I'm not positive they even make the playoffs next year. They wouldn't have this year. It's not to take away from what they've done, but you better take advantage when you're here, because you don't know when you're going to be back.
4: Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's, that's the same in across all sports. I mean, just ask Dan Marino, right? Like, um, it's an interesting question, Like, yeah, like Calgary beats the Ottawa senators two more times, Calgary's in there. And we're probably talking about, you know, the Winnipeg jets or the Leafs playing here. Um, like it was that close, but Montreal did start off really, really well. Like they did start on a run and then got into a bunch of injury problems. And, and then you look at just the, the manner of the game they play, like, I mean, the Leafs were exposed for a bunch of things, but one was they appeared built for regular season hockey. And when the referees, and I'm not defending this, and we've had this conversation before, but when the referees misplaced their copy of the rule book on their way to the rink, like you're not going to be saved here. And it seems like Montreal is built for that kind of stuff. Like, you know, Mitch Marner, Austin Matthews, being stuck on the perimeter, being clutched and grabbed and, God knows what else, and, and basically getting in their own heads and flailing away, that hasn't impacted the Canadians because they're not built to play that way.
0: And, you know, that's uh, that's a funny thing because we've heard a lot. I'm sure you've heard it too. We've heard a lot of people saying, well, geez, look, if the Leafs had just scored one more goal, they'd be playing in the finals right now. I, I'm, I'm not positive that one plus one equals two. I'm not positive that if the Leafs win that – I'm not positive you can just replace Montreal with Toronto – and automatically assume the Leafs are in the finals if they had won that first round.
4: I think Las Vegas puts the Leafs and turns them into a fine paste before expelling them off into a summer vacation. Um, that took a special brand. That took a that took that took a lot on the defensive back end, and I'm not sure that the Leafs were properly constituted for that. I'm not sure that you know uh, Morgan Riley has a huge skill set, obviously. But like the top four around him, I'm not sure that was built to sort of withstand the wear and tear that those Vegas forwards would have put on them the way that Montreal somehow did. And oh, by the way, backstopped by arguably the best goaltender of his generation.
0: So let's talk about those goalies for a second, because once again, we've got, well, first of all, b- before I do that, I just wanted to point out that when we're talking about the, the challenge that Montreal faces, uh, the leading scorers in the playoffs so far, Nikita Kucherov, Tampa, Braden Point, Tampa, Alex Kalorn, Tampa, Steven Samkos, Tampa, William Carlson, Vegas, he's out, Victor Hedman, Tampa. Five of the top six guys in playoff scoring are with Tampa. The pressure on Montreal's defense to shut everybody down. This is going to be the big test, but go to those goalies for a second because you've got Carey Price, um, who, as we say, has been unbelievable. I mean, it's been amazing. We've seen that before here in Hamilton. And you've got Andre Vasilevsky, who is first actually in playoff goaltending stats. Is this what we want as far as excitement? Do we want Stanley Cup finals where you've got the two best goalies, where goals are going to be so difficult to come by you would expect? Or do we prefer a finals where maybe the goalies aren't quite that good and we see games that have a lot more scoring? Well, I think there's probably a happy medium and
4: I think we're probably there. Like this isn't the two thousand and four final between Tampa and Calgary, right? Where it's clutch <laughs> and grab and neutral zone uh, interference and left wing lock, where it seems like it's a, a football game being played in the mud, right? Where, where Jacques Lemaire
0: is nowhere down. to be seen.
4: Right. So it's like it's like watching Euro, right? Like one goal and Kitty bar the door, and that might be enough. Although
0: Euros kind of disproved that as well this
4: year. Um, So I I don't know if that's going to be the case here. Um, I mean, Tampa did show a capability of exploding offensively, and Montreal did have a couple of big offensive games. And I'm not sure necessarily that Tampa has played a team in the playoffs that's been able to do some of the stuff that Montreal has done. I remember... I mean, watching the Canadians play the Jets and then, you know, later that night watching Vegas and the Avalanche. And you're like, well, this is a completely different sport. I mean, the pace is just so much faster that these guys are wheeling and dealing and moving. And it's just so dangerous. There's no way. And yet you show up and you watch even the first game. I mean, Kerry Price made a thousand excellent saves that the Canadians retired after a seven game series, but Vegas slowed down. And something within that system, I think, was responsible for it because they just—they didn't forget how to skate. They didn't—they didn't forget to play like they did against Colorado. They just—they just bogged down in the mud.
0: It's—it um, it is going to be one of the all-time challenges for sure for Montreal. I mean, I, I don't rule them out. It's just going to be really, really, really difficult for them uh, to be able to to hang. I think with Tampa Bay. Now, I want to bring up one other thing. We got just a, few, a minute left here. I looked up today because ESPN next year, very celebrated decision that ESPN is going to have NHL rights. I went to the ESPN website just before we came on. You've got to go down eight screens deep past the NBA, past Wimbledon, past Euro soccer, past college baseball, past offseason NFL, past stories on black history and some stuff on pride before you get to the NHL. Is there any hope? I mean, I, I suppose these finals might inspire some interest south of the border, but I'm not getting the sense that that if we're talking about growing the sport further in the states, that your new broadcast partner, even with such a a historic and cool matchup, is is really latching on this.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think it'll be in the game presentation. I've always been I've always been really interested in the notion of media coverage drives fan avidity. Like I know you and I are both old people. Remember the Argos in 2003, how you could go to like a a walkthrough, a day before walkthrough in in Arendelle, and there'd be six or seven TV cameras. There'd be local and national affiliates. There'd be three or four or five radio stations. uh, All four Toronto newspapers would have a, a lowly beat person there like me. And then there'd be a columnist. And then, you know, an esteemed paper, like somebody from the Hamilton Spectator would come in and write about it. Like that was a ton of attention, way more than they get now. And yet the Argos went bankrupt that year and nobody showed up to games. So I, I don't know if the like attention, the flag waving, that sort of thing plays into it. I think a lot of it falls to the league itself and the way it markets itself and creates stars and the star system.
0: We will see. This is going to be a fascinating one because this is, uh, I I read something just uh, earlier today that Montreal is the biggest underdog in finals history. I don't know if that's correct, but you know what? They've been a pretty big underdog all the way along and uh, they're still here. So we are going to see beginning tonight, uh, Sean Fitzgerald, always appreciate your time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. Uh, you can find Sean. He's a senior national writer with The Athletic. You can find his stuff there. Great, great writer. And as I say, a local guy. So that makes us even makes it even better. The Scott Thompson Show. Weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. Oh, this is the Scott Thompson Podcast. Available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you
3: don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.